Well, we've been going through the Bible, eat this book, and we've been going through the book of Genesis, and uh, we, this is our last week in Genesis. If you're reading, you should be coming to the end of the book of Exodus, and uh, we're going to start that next weekend. But this weekend, we want to close it out, and, and I really want to just kind of move through uh, a number of chapters in Genesis and just kind of give you a big picture You know, we remember last week we were in Genesis 12 where God made a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're going to be, uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a a place, a land that I'm going to show you. You're going to be blessed by me and you're going to be a blessing to others. And then uh, this uh, weekend we want to look at uh, the life of, uh, really the life of Joseph, but uh, it's really under Jacob. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And uh, those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's family life was not typical of anything that we have experienced, I hope. It was bizarre. He was was tricked by his father-in-law when he wanted to marry the younger daughter, and he was given the older daughter. And he woke up in the morning, and he says, and... (laughs) And when he woke up, it was Leah, not Rachel, the one, the younger daughter that he loved. So he ended up marrying Leah, and then he ended up having Rachel because that's the, the woman that he always loved. So now he has two wives. And not only did he have two wives, but each Leah and Rachel had maidservants. And uh, they gave their maidservants to Jacob to sleep with. And uh, here's, here's what's going on. This is messed up, okay? And you read it in the Scripture and you go, why doesn't the Bible condemn that right then and there? I want the Bible to say, and that was wrong and he shouldn't have done that. But the Bible doesn't many times. The Bible just describes what's happening. It's telling the story. It's, it's not going to stop and do a timeout and say, oh, by the way, it doesn't do that. Now, all you have to do is read the rest of the story of Jacob and his family and his brothers, his sons, and how those brothers interacted with each other. And you see the damage. You see the devastation. You see the strife, the jealousy, all of that that's going on there. And, and that's the point. The point is, is you read that and you say, the plan wasn't followed, God's plan. And now here's what happens when you don't follow God's plan. You have turmoil. You have heartache. You have treachery. You have uh, betrayal. You have uh, strife and jealousy and and just all those things going on within the family. Now, in that day, it was really significant and important for a woman to have children. In fact, not to have children meant that God was not favoring you. And to have children, especially to have sons, was to be blessed by God. And so Leah immediately began to have children. And Rachel, the one that, that uh, Jacob, the daughter that Jacob loved, uh, the daughter of Laban that Jacob loved, uh, she was barren. She didn't have any children. And so Leah gave her handmaiden to uh, Jacob to sleep with and have children. And so then Leah did the same thing. So now they're having multiple children through not only uh, Leah and the handmaidens, uh, but they're so they have all these children that are showing up and they're becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And Finally, Jacob and Rachel, his beloved wife, 
his favorite wife. By the way, my wife Carol is my favorite wife. I just want to make, go on the record to say that. <laughs> but the point is, she finally gives birth to this baby boy. And his name is Joseph. So now you, you have this, and, and you, you, I'm sure that when Jacob and his beloved wife finally were able to have this child, that Jacob just, wow. You think all of his other sons thought he might have been a faith? You know, if you have, if you're from a family and you have siblings, and you might have an idea or think that your fam- your parents preferred one sibling over another. Well, the brothers, there was no, Everyone would have given the same answer. They loved Joseph more. And to make it worse, Jacob makes a special coat for Joseph. So now Joseph's walking around almost with a sign saying, I'm dad's favorite. I mean, it was. It was. And to make it even worse than that, you know, God begins to speak to Joseph through, through dreams. And Joseph's having dreams. And his dreams basically come to a point where they essentially are interpreted to mean that Joseph one day will rule over his brothers. That didn't go over well with his brothers. So you could see why there's, there's all this strife. You have multiple children through multiple women. And then you have this golden boy that's born. And he's given a special coat by the father. And now he has these dreams where he's saying, I'm going to rule over the rest of you. And let's just be honest, Joseph probably didn't play, play it very well. He didn't downplay it very much. It's hard to find too many things wrong with him, but it seems as though there were some things that he was not, he was not helping. He was not helping put the fire out at all. And so one day, Jacob says to Joseph, go check on your brothers. They were out with the flocks and take tending to the herds. And uh, they're in another place and Joseph went looking for them and finally found them and as he was walking to join them they saw him and knew he was coming and they basically plotted his demise ultimately what happened was they sold him to a caravan that was going to Egypt as a slave they took his coat they splattered blood all over it took it to their father and says I'm not sure, but isn't this your son's coat? Of course it was. And uh, they allowed Jacob to assume the worst, that Joseph had been torn apart by an animal, a wild animal. So we go to Joseph in Egypt, and he is purchased as a slave by an Egyptian officer named well, it was Potiphar he's mentioned in the, in the Genesis. And Potiphar immediately sees the potential that Joseph has and puts him in charge of his house. He sees he has this incredible managerial leadership skill and he puts him in charge over his house. The only problem is Potiphar has this trampy, loose wife. I mean, she was. She was real loose, trampy. Just, and uh, Joseph was very handsome, so I'm modernizing this a little bit for you. <laughs> I don't know what the word, Hebrew word is for tramp. Okay, I just don't know what that is. 
Uh, but the point is, uh, she kept making advances at Joseph over and over and over until finally one day she just grabbed him and said, sleep with me. And Joseph just fled and left this coat behind. Something, there's something going on with the coat. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, but Joseph flees and Potiphar is left with nothing to do. I mean, he, my, my, and I don't have text and verse I could give you, but my inclination is that he knew that his wife, this was just another episode with his wife, but he has Joseph thrown into prison. He didn't have him killed. He had him thrown into prison. And so while Joseph's in prison, two of his inmate friends happened to be the cupbearer, and the cupbearer was the one who generally many times within the administration with the, with the pharaoh, and he would have been the cupbearer for the pharaoh of Egypt, uh, they would protect the pharaoh, protect the king by testing the food, testing the wine, and many times they were involved in uh, a lot. They were always there, so they were involved in a lot of the trade and the conversations. They heard them, and sometimes pharaohs would even trust them enough to get their opinion. You'll see that in Nehemiah. But the point is that the, the pharaoh basically uh, throws the cupbearer, for whatever reason, into prison, and the baker. I don't know if he made a bad pie or cake. but uh, So they're both in prison, and lo and behold, they have these dreams. And, of course, Joseph has kind of become an expert in interpreting dreams. And so Joseph interprets their dreams, and he basically says to the cupbearer, you will be restored to your position, until he says to the baker, you're going to lose your head. You're dead. I mean, and that's what happened. So he says to the cupbearer before he's restored back, remember me when you get before Pharaoh, remember me. And so Joseph's words come true, the Baker loses his head. The cupbearer goes back to the pharaoh and forgets Joseph. A couple years pass by and lo and behold, the pharaoh begins to have some dreams. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers this guy in prison. Yeah, I think his name was Joseph. And so they summon Joseph. He gets cleaned up. They bring him before the pharaoh and the pharaoh tells him the dreams. And Joseph says, here's what your dreams mean. You're going to have seven years and you're going to have an incredible harvest. And then the next seven years are going to be, you're going to have drought. You're going to have famine. It's going to be horrible. So my suggestion is you find somebody who can gather all the food that you can possibly get in these seven good years because you're going to need them in those seven lean years. And Pharaoh basically says, well, seems like you know what you're talking about. Why don't I put you in charge of it? And he did. So Joseph became probably the second or top person in the kingdom besides the Pharaoh. And he gathered the food in the seven good years. And sure enough, uh, a famine came and everybody came to Egypt looking for food because the word got out. Egypt had food. Egypt had stored food. So people came and they sold their possessions. And the Pharaoh became very wealthy. And in the midst of all of that, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt because they're dying too. They come to Egypt. Jacob sends them and he immediately recognizes them. They don't recognize him but he recognizes them. And he must have looked very different. And uh, through circumstances, he finally reveals who he is. And he brings them 
to Egypt. He says, go get dad, bring him to Egypt. They all come to Egypt. They become a fam. They're a family of around 70 and they're uh, treated as guests by Pharaoh. And Joseph, or, or excuse me, Jacob comes to the point where he comes to the end of his life. He blesses his sons. He blesses Joseph and he dies. And then the brothers come to Joseph and they say, you know, before dad died, he said this. And this is a rough quote. Dad said, be nice to us. <laughs> well, that's essentially what they say. You know, they said, you know, don't do anything. Don't get don't get even. And, and, and Joseph, it says his response to this was he wept. Why did, he, why did he weep? I think because their trust had been broken, because reconciliation was incomplete. But Joseph surprised his brothers. And it's, it was in a commentary that I was reading as I was preparing for this, Derek Kittner on Genesis, where he wrote, he said, in the three statements, verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 19, 20, and 21, Joseph makes three statements, and they are incredible statements. So I want to spend the rest of the time that we have left looking at those three statements because I think they have incredible implications for our faith. So that's where we're going to go. Now, the story I just told you is probably from chapter 36, 37 through 50. It's, there's a lot of material that we cover there. It's an incredible story. And if you haven't read through the Joseph story, I would encourage you to do it. But when we want to look at um, Genesis chapter 50, and I want to start reading at verse 19. Well, verse 18, I want to just quickly uh, read, and then we'll jump into 19. This is what the, the text says. Then his brothers, this is Joseph's brothers, came, and they threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You indeed, uh, you intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that, so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he, he reassured them, speaking fondly to them. Now, if I was underlining Scripture verses in my Bible, I would definitely at least do verse 20 because that's an incredible verse and it has incredible implications. So the reconciliation of jo Joseph and his brothers, I think, gives us three important principles for a growing faith. And the first one is this, that we can live beyond our human capacity. He basically says, am I God that I should judge you? Now, what he's saying there, Joseph is saying there is pretty significant and pretty important. He is saying to his brothers, I am, you know, his, ultimately his dream was fulfilled. He has power over his brothers. He now, I mean, Pharaoh's not going to say, well, I'm going to put my brothers to death. He, he could have put them to death immediately the first time he met them. He could he had the power to do it. Pharaoh wouldn't, wouldn't have cared. He had ultimate power over them. And yet he says, am I God? In other words, what Joseph did here was he took himself out of the seat of God. He says, I'm not, I'm not qualified to sit in God's chair. I'm not qualified to sit on this throne. I'm not qualified to be God. I'm going to let God be God. And, you know, they had caused him untold pain and suffering. And yet Joseph 
Let God be God. He didn't take the seat of God. Now, have you ever done that? Have you ever taken God's chair? Have you ever sat in God's seat? Have you ever tried to play God? You say, well, no, I don't play God. I mean, I'm, I sometimes go a little further than I should, but I don't play God. And I want to try to convince you. I want to kind of give you some examples about how you may play God more than you think. Let me give you a few. One of these is uh, in the area well, where we, we determine, and, and this, is, uh, this is, sounds very good, we determine right, for, right from wrong for ourselves. We determine, we're the final arbitrator of what's right or wrong. Now, I'm not talking about what are, uh, kind of food is good or not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ultimate moral issues. Uh, you know, the temptation of Adam and Eve was essentially, who's going to determine right and wrong for you? In other words, they could either trust God and, and, and stay away from the tree, or they could take things under their own hands and say, you know what, God said this, but I know better than God in this area. And uh, that we know what the, the choice they made. They chose not to trust God. They chose to take things in their own hands, and we're suffering the consequences today. You know, we still make that same choice. In fact, the staple of our culture is this. Every person needs to determine what is right and wrong for themselves. Only I can know what is right for me. Now, we're not talking about where I should work, what career. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is when something is wrong, and it's always been wrong, and it's always going to be wrong, or something is right. It's always right. It's always going to be right. And we determine, We say, well, it may be for you, and we take this eternal principle, and we say, but it's not for me. For instance, many people think that this book, the Bible, is outdated. It's, it's antiquated. It's irrelevant. It's a little boorish. The Bible today, though, uh, you know, be, why? Because we're modern, we're scientific, we're enlightened, we're evolved, we're intelligent. We don't need to follow this outdated Bible. Now, I think that there's some things that we believe today that if, if, if we could live to be 100 or 150 years old from now, uh, if we could live that long and look back, I think there's some things that we might believe and we might hold to right now that we would say, oh, wow, that was kind of foolish. And yet we think it was really... Well, let me give you an example. <clears throat> it's interesting. A number of uh, books I've been reading recently um, uh, has this practice of bloodletting. And it essentially is when you get sick, like, I mean, we've had the flu and the cold, a lot of that going on. Uh, and when you go into the... If, you were, if we were still doing that, the doctor, you'd go in the doctor's office and he would basically just drain a pint or so of your blood. And, and hopefully that might fix you. I mean, that's what they did... You know, up until the 19th, the late 19th century, this was a common medical procedure. Now, as far as I know, there's no doctors that practice bloodletting today. It's not a helpful procedure. It's something that medicine would look back and cringe at, even though it was cutting edge. And they, they did this for 2,000 years. This was a common practice. Well, we look at it today and we cringe. What I'm suggesting is we might hold some other views today that a hundred years from now, you know, we're so evolved, we, we have it so together, and yet maybe we don't really have it all together. But on the other hand, I think there's some things that are true today that were true 2,000 years ago. There's some things that are right today that were right 2,000 years ago. I think there's some things that are wrong today that were wrong 2,000 years ago. And whether you decide or not, they're right or they're wrong. 
they're ultimately right or wrong. And, and that's what I'm suggesting, that sometimes we p- take the place of God when we determine. Like if Joseph had said, uh, you're dead, that would have been wrong. It would have been morally wrong for him to do that. Now you could say, well, look at what well, they did. Well, of course, I know all they did. But still, it, it doesn't make it right just because he chose and determined it was right. Let me give you one other one. A couple more. Sometimes we, we play God when we ask other people to be God in our lives. You know, we, we don't make... And that's another thing. We go back and we look at people and say, well, look, at they had idols. They bowed down. Do you realize that the people in, in that day, they, they didn't have uh, the uh, scientific uh, uh, knowledge that we have today. So when they looked at the, the weather and they, they, they saw that there was a God for this and a God for that. In Egypt, that's what you're going to see next weekend. Is there, is there a God for the water? There's a God for the sky. There's a God for the sun and the moon and the stars. There's a God for the fertility. There's all these different gods. And uh, we know scientifically that, that, that that's not true and there's some natural forces moving on. But the point is, so they would worship these to try to appease these gods so that the god, for instance, of fertility would make their cattle give uh, birth and they would be prosperous in that area. It's very common in that day in their knowledge to do, to do all that stuff. So they would uh, bow down to these idols for that reason. Now we say, well, that's so primitive. We don't do that. We, we don't have idols today. Oh, yes, we do. We just don't. You know, ours are just different. They're just not the same kind, but we have idols. For instance, we have idols because we use different things. We use people instead of idols. Like, for instance, you, you say, let me give you an example. You say, I'm lonely. I, I, I feel like I'm not significant and I'm not um, secure and I'm not satisfied with my life, but if I could find somebody to love me, if I could find somebody that would affirm me, that would love me, that would provide for me and make me feel safe and secure and significant, then I would feel good about who I am. Then I would feel secure. And what are we doing? We're saying, I'm asking you to make me feel like a real person, like significant. And so what we've done is we've said, I'm going to make you an idol. I'm going to make you an idol. You know, falling in love. We think, I, I, I want this, I need this, I, I need to have this love. But, but when you ask anyone, uh, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment when we ask anyone to be God. Uh, don't look to others to meet your deepest needs. Ultimately, your deepest need can only be met by God. And so, in that sense, we play God when we ask other people. Sometimes with parents, we ask our children to be our idols. Well, look at I'm a good parent, so therefore I must be valuable. I must be, uh, you know, I must have a purpose and all those different things. I don't have time to go into all those examples, but all, all this to say is we do that. Let me ask you, uh, give you another one. Have you ever worried about anything? Have you worried about anything? What's worry? Worry is essentially saying, God, I don't agree with your timetable or your tactics. You're not moving fast enough or you're not doing the right thing. If I was in charge, I would do things different. What are you saying? God, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm worrying. I'm worried about what you're doing, God. I don't, worry means I don't trust God. That's ultimately what it's saying. So we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we're saying, I don't trust you here. I, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you're doing it right. I don't, I don't have confidence in you. Worry is that. 
You're taking God's seat. Let me give you one more. Have you ever held a grudge? Are you holding a grudge currently? Do you have, do you feel resentment towards other people? What is that? You know, it's interesting because Joseph says, am I God that I should judge you? (laughs) And yet, what do we do every day? We, we hold a grudge. What is a grudge? A grudge is we are angry at a person. They've done and said something against us. We, we choose not to forgive them, to hold it against them. And why? We say, well, they need to suffer. They need to apologize. They need to do something. They, they need to make things right before I will forgive them. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that? You know, when you forget, when you ask for forgiveness, when you, uh, when you, uh, apologize, when you, uh, do this, then I'll forgive you. No, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or judgment. Sometimes we say, you know, I, 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 this person deserves this, this person deserves this, they deserve this kind of judgment and, or we're prejudiced, or all these different things. What are we doing there when we're judging people, when we're ready to, we're holding hard feelings, resentment, and all that? We're sitting in God's seat. You know what Jesus is telling us, or Paul is telling us in Romans 12, where he says, vengeance is mine. Don't take vengeance. Don't seek your own vengeance. He's saying, get out of my seat. You don't belong there. Joseph basically was saying to his brothers, listen, Whatever you deserve, that's between you and God. I'll let him handle it. I'm getting out of his seat. And yet what we tend to do is we get in that seat and say, this is what should happen. This is what should happen. I hate that person. And, and what we're doing is we're playing God. We begin to die the moment that we sit in his chair. Someone has said the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to become God. So we do that in a lot. And, and this is just a few examples. There's a lot of examples where we just... So maybe this is what you need, your takeaway needs to be this weekend. Maybe the statement where Joseph says, am I God that I should judge you? And the answer is no. So are there areas in your life where you've played God or are trying to play God and, uh, or you've shoved God out of his seat and you're sitting in God's seat and you need to hold, or hear his words and get out of that chair? So number two So that's verse 19 where Joseph says, Am I God that I should judge you? And verse 20 is very interesting. He says to his brothers, You intended it, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph was able to see, yes, it was difficult, it was hard, what you did was evil, what we did was bad, but I see how God brought me to this place so that we could preserve this family, our family, so that we could live on. See, Joseph took a different perspective than we often do. He chose to see things from God's perspective. And God, graciously and mercifully showed Joseph in his lifetime why he was doing what he's doing. So often things happen in our lives and we don't understand why. We, we wish we had an answer. We wish God would. But sometimes God just doesn't give us an answer. Sometimes God doesn't show us how it's all going to play out. What he says in those times and what he was saying to Joseph when he was going through prison and all these different things is trust me. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Even if you don't understand it, trust me. I have a plan and I have a purpose. You see, the hard thing to do, the reason it's hard to do this is because many times when we're going through those difficulties, we're down, we're down in the valley. We don't see the big picture. And God is in, up on the mountaintops. He sees the big picture. He's not limited by his vision like we are. He's not limited to time. He's not limited to, there's no visibility limitation that God had, has. You know, a number of years ago, I was in Paris. I spent a day in Paris and I was able to visit, uh, uh, 
I wanted to visit all the touristy things like the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower and different things. And so when I was walking around and I had the map, and Paris is kind of one of those cities where it's beautiful, but the roads aren't, it's like the Butte, the roads aren't necessarily parallel and the buildings are tall, so I didn't really know where I was. I finally made my, made my way to the Eiffel Tower and I got up on the Eiffel Tower and I looked down and I had the map. I said, okay, I want to go there and I want to go there. So I got my bearings and I could see where I needed to go. It was a totally different perspective. And that's God's perspective. Joseph had God's perspective. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? Are you a Tigger or are you an Eeyore? (laughs) Think about that. If you've you've read Winnie the Pooh, Tigger is just bouncing around, happy-go-lucky, right? And the glass is not just half full, it's three-quarters full, even though it's half full. It just doesn't even care. He's just bouncing around having a good old time. And then there's Eeyore. Oh, boo. It's a disaster. What are we going to do? You know, it's a sunny day. It looks like rain. You know, it's just, that's Eeyore, you know. And we walk around, and many of us walk around with an either-or. We're either an optimist or we're a pessimist. And we say either life is good or life is bad. And we really can't, you know, and, and, you know, Joseph's perspective is not either or. Do you notice his perspective here? It's not, he's not saying, well, life is good, you know? No. Or he's not saying, life's bad, life's horrible, it's treachery, it's awful, it's horrible. No, what, he's saying something that's pretty important here. See, Joseph is giving God's perspective on life. He's not giving an either or. Life is either good or life is bad. No, what he's saying is life is good and life is bad. But God is good and loving all the time. That's what he basically is saying in his statement. He is saying, you meant it for evil. He's not downplaying. He's saying, you know, you did terrible, irreparable damage to me. You betrayed me. I, my life has is, is been just been so different than what it might have been. I've been a slave. I mean, he could go through all the stories, all the heartache, all the pain, all the suffering because of what his brothers did. He says, what you did to me was evil. But then he has that small word, but God had a plan. You threw your worst at me, but God did something even better. He took the evil, the the bad, and He turned it to good. And that's the way we have to view life. You see, Joseph isn't excusing or downplaying the hurtful experience caused by his brothers. He's pointing to the fact that God had a plan even in the midst of it all. That God had His best interests in mind. And by the way, he still does for us today. That's that's the way you view the world. You don't view it as either good or bad. You view it as, yes, it's got good times and good things happen. And yes, it has bad things. Sometimes downright evil things where somebody will take a gun and just kill a whole bunch of people and say, why? And I don't know why. 
But it also says that God has a plan and God has a purpose. And, he, and even though He seems like He's silent and He's not doing anything, He has a plan and He has a purpose. And here's the rub that we get. We don't always get to see what He's doing. In fact, most of the time we don't. Most of the time we don't get to see what Joseph saw where he is able to see how God was working it all out in his life. We don't get that. Abraham didn't, by the way. When God made the promise to Abraham, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, last week, how God made these promises to Abraham. He never saw these promises in his lifetime come to fruition. He didn't see that. Joseph was able to see that. But my point is, life is hard. It's often difficult. But God is good. That's what Joseph is saying. It's not either or, it's both and. Our part, though, is that no matter what happens, we trust his plan. And that's what Joseph basically, essentially that's what Joseph was saying. He doesn't downplay the evil plans of the brothers, but he, 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 he does upplay God's role. And he says, you know, God, you, you throw your worst at me because God's got a plan and you can't, you can't mess it up. By the way, neither can you. Yeah, he might take you down a different road. You might make horrible choices. But that's, the most important thing maybe that you need to hear today is this. That you may have really done some, you know, boneheaded dumb things or somebody has hurt you and you feel like your life is over. As long as you're drawing a breath, as long as you have a pulse, and if you love Jesus and you say, you know what, I don't understand this, I don't like this, God has, still has a plan for your life and can do incredible things in your life. That's the, the, the encouraging thing. That no one's going to thwart God's... If, if, if you want to follow God and give God your life, no matter where you are, what time you is, God can still use your life. God can still do incredible things. So the question is, how do you look at your troubles? Are you stuck in the valley floor? Or will you allow God, who has that mountaintop vision, and trust Him? That he sees what's going on and he's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and he is loving. Here's the third thing we learn, and this is from verse 21. You can love beyond your human capacity. Joseph says to his brothers, I will continue to care for you and your children. Reconciliation. He, he says, well, I'm not going to play God, and yeah, yeah, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, you know? But here's what, here's how I'm going to respond. I'm going to take care of you. Now, you can't get to this step. You can't get to this place of reconciliation or forgiveness or whatever it is that Joseph's doing with his brothers till you get step one and step two right. Till you get to the point where you say, I'm going to stop playing God. I'm going to get off the throne. I'm going to stop judging. I'm going to stop uh, uh, assessing motives and everything on people. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let God handle that. It's evil. It's bad what they did, but I'm going to just let it go. I'm going to say, God, you have a plan. I'm not going to play God. I'm going to get off your chair. I'm going to let you do that. And number two, I don't understand everything that's going on in my life, but I'm going to let God handle it. I'm going to trust you that you have a plan and a purpose. And when you get to that point, you can go to point three and say, you know what? I can show you kindness because why? If I think you need to be judged, if I think that you did me evil, I'll let God handle that. I don't have to handle that. It's not my job anyway. And I don't see everything as God sees it. I don't see the motives of your heart. I don't know what you've been through. So I can forgive you because... I know that God has got these other things in control. And until you get to that point, I don't see how you can get reconciliation or even, you know, to that place. 
You see, until you leave judgment to him and until you trust his perspective, it's impossible to love and forgive your enemies. Joseph chose to forgive and love his brothers. How did he do this? He got out of God's seat and he took God's perspective and he was able to forgive his brothers. He imaged God's love. You see, Joseph experienced the love and grace and mercy. I'm sure Joseph had a moment where he was able to see what God was doing in his life in spite of his brothers. And I think it just broke him down. He says, God, you're amazing. This has been hard, but this is so amazing to me. It's amazing that you brought me to a place where I can save my family here. You're amazing how gracious and merciful he was. And, and that's, I think, why he broke down. Because he wasn't saying, okay, you didn't really mean it. He was really, you did mean it. But God meant something better than that, bigger than that. And, and it broke him down. And he got to the point where he said, there's something bigger going on than me trying to play little human judge here. You see, what I'm suggesting to you is that he caught a glimpse of God's love and grace and it changed his life. And until you get this outside help, you're going to have a hard time forgiving people and reconciling. Now, we have today an even better perspective than Joseph, than Abraham, than David, than Daniel, than Peter, than John the Baptist, in fact, it was said of John the Baptist by Jesus. Didn't Jesus say this? You know, John the Baptist, the, those of the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. What are they talking about? I mean, I don't feel like I'm greater than John the Baptist. What's he talking about there? What he's talking about there is that we have information now about Jesus and about how it all is going to play out. And, and, and the whole revelation, God's ma magnificent plan from beginning to end, we have all of that right now. We have it in our hands. And Jesus, we know all of that. So we have, we, have, we have mountains of information of what God's plan is and how he loves us and all this, the words of Jesus. We have all of that. So we have that. Joseph didn't have that. Abraham didn't have that. Daniel, the Old Testament prophets, didn't have that. Now I want to close and I just want to talk about very quickly the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Joseph was in a place of judgment. Joseph finally saw the plan of God. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was in a place of judgment. But instead of Jesus meeting out judgment, and Joseph did meet out judgment, Jesus took the judgment. Jesus took the penalty. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. He's the ultimate example of good being brought out of evil. He's the ultimate example of people meaning it for evil, but God brings... You know, when you look to the cross... When you, when you understand the cross, when you understand the gospel, you see the ultimate evil of man being poured out on Jesus and the ultimate good coming out to us because of the... Think the cross. The cross is that perfect example of the ultimate evil bringing the ultimate good. The gospel is that. The ultimate evil be, being... Uh, the ultimate evil, we are sinners. The ultimate good, we are loved. And so... Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The cross, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see how that plays out? 
And see, when you, get a gri- when you get a grasp of the gospel, when you get a grasp of the cross, and you begin to see that, you look at other people differently. You get out of the seat of God. You get God's perspective. And you have a new heart towards reconciliation. You have a new heart towards forgiveness. You say, I forgive. Why? Because I'm forgiven. I love. Why? Because I'm loved. I follow what example? I follow the example of Jesus. What did he do? He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who took our sin, he took my pain, he took my punishment. He was mistreated, he was abused, and what did he do? He did not utter a word. He left it in God's hands. He, he is the one who could have judged us, but instead of judging us, he took judgment upon himself for us. That's the God we have. Joseph's an incredible story. The pain and the suffering he went through is amazing. But the ultimate pain and suffering is when Jesus gave his life for you and for me. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. The cross is the ultimate reversal of how man makes it for evil, but God turns it out for good. And he still does that today in your life. Walk in that confidence today. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you can take the most evil, horrible deeds and turn them for good. May we walk in confidence, not because we have confidence, but because we have confidence in you and that you have a plan and a purpose. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't see it, we trust you anyway. Thank you, Father, for the cross, which is a tangible example of how the ultimate evil can be turned into the ultimate good. And thank you, Father, you're still doing that today. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.